Good morning, friends. My name is Patrick Schlabs. I'm one of the pastors at the Cathedral Church. So glad that you have joined us here for this service, and I'm happy to be um, preaching the scriptures to you this morning. Before we begin, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift that it is to uh, sit under your word, to hear it proclaimed, to hear it taught, to hear it explained. Father, I pray that you would now open the words in my mouth or that they would be your words and uh, that your truth would be heard, that it would be uh, taken to heart, that it would be obeyed by me and by every one of us who listens. We love you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So anyone who has ever done a construction project or a home renovation or even just a very small home improvement project knows the excitement that comes from seeing a finished product. And over the past few months, I have been thinking about the excitement, imagining how the people who worship for the first time in this building that I'm standing in, this cathedral church sanctuary, what they would have felt like as they saw it being built and they saw it being constructed. From the first brick that was laid in 1809 to the last that was laid in 1816. The anticipation of this beautiful new suburban, at the time, church in Charleston must have been unbelievable. But I've also spent the last several weeks thinking about this contrasting image, contrasting the joyful expectation of those who would enjoy this space with those who enabled that enjoyment to come about. The enslaved Africans who were stolen from their homes and were treated as chattel, as property. I've been thinking about the thousands of hours of unpaid work that they committed so that we could enjoy this even to this day. The long days in the midst of August heat or January cold. And they did all of this for people who viewed them as barely human beings. Fast forward a little bit and I try to imagine the first service and probably the closest picture that I can have in my mind is our worship gathering on Easter Sunday, 2016. I know that feels like a world away, but that Easter was our bicentennial celebration and it was glorious. If you weren't there, if you were there, you saw it, you you remember it, but if you weren't, it was beautiful. There were people from all over the city that joined us, including the mayor. There were former deans. The bishop was here. The, uh, The gallery was full. I've never seen this church more joyful and filled. It was absolutely beautiful. And I assume that the, the first Sunday when they gathered here in this space would have been something like that as they sung together hymns of praise, as they prayed the colics, as they heard the scriptures taught, as they celebrated communion. What joy and what glory that worship must have been like. But then I can't help but looking up at the gallery, imagining what it must have felt like for the slaves who had built this place to be a joyous home for worship of God's people. Who were owned by the founders of our church. What must they have thought of the worship, of the hymns? Did they feel a dissonance, a disconnect between what was being said and what was being sung and what they were experiencing of the Christian faith? Do you feel a dissonance by the fact that this space that was built for the worship and the glory of God was built upon the backs of enslaved Africans. 
who as they sang about God being a deliverer, those same songs were sung by mouths who'd kept them in bondage. Do you feel that dissonance? I hope you do. This morning, we are in week two of our undivided sermon series, and it has been such a joy to see this thing come together. 27 churches, last I checked, were participating in this series all over our city. And the the point of it is preaching about the particular sin of racism among us. And the framework that Pete um, introduced to us last week is this passage from Micah 6.8 that was in fact our theme for this year, going back to um, our annual meeting in February. And that is to uh, God's call, to hear God's call, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. And Pete did an amazing job last week opening up that first idea of what it means to do justice. He talked about the Hebrew word mishpat and he unpacked Peter's experience of, of being a faithful Jew his entire life. And then the Lord opening up his eyes to see the beauty of nations, of Gentiles who had been excluded from God's people being welcomed in. This week we are looking at that next phrase, that next idea, to love mercy. And I think it's helpful to know, when we think about Micah, it's helpful to get a bit more broad, broader context about what the book's about. And the entire book, you can read through it really quickly. I'd actually encourage you to do it sometime this week. The entire book is about God's judgment spoken from the mouth of Micah due to injustice. Micah, we know, was written at a time of relative peace, kind of a, a, a short time between um, various kings, but there was relative stability. And this led to the development of of a wealthier upper class. And so the emphasis in Micah is a particular kind of injustice, and that is economic injustice. And in particular, injustice that is brought about by the leaders. The leaders are called out by name again and again. And it's not just the leaders, but the leaders, the priests, and even the prophets are indicted in this word of justice. In fact, in one of them, Micah 3.10, he says that these leaders have built Zion with blood, and they have built Jerusalem with iniquity. And so the scene that we have here in Micah 6 is a courtroom scene when God building his case. And what he does is he explains that God's people have been unfaithful to the covenant. A covenant was a very common notion in the ancient Near East. It's when a greater party, oftentimes a king or a tribal leader, came to a lesser party and said, I will protect you and I will uh, keep my promises to you. And all you have to do is respond with loyalty and obedience. And so we see that play out in Deuteronomy after Israel is led out of slavery, Exodus and Deuteronomy. God makes this covenantal promise with them and it happens on a mountain. And so all of the prophets are, are, are speaking out their judgments with that framework in mind. We made promises to God on mountains to be faithful, to do all that was in the words of the law. And you have failed and judgment is coming. So here God summons witnesses. He summons creation itself, the mountains and the hills, the foundations of the earth. The mountains were there at the first covenant. And God says, they remember, they will bear witness against you in this issue. But even as God is proclaiming judgment here, he, you, you catch a tinge of sadness. Even in the midst of this judgment, he still calls them my people. He says, what have I done to you, my people? Has my command been too burdensome? Are you weary because of my requests? And then he goes on to remind them of his past fatherly care. 
He outlines their rescue from Egypt and the house of slavery. He says that he raised up mighty leaders for them, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He keeps them safe from opposition in the form of these enemy king, this enemy king, Balak, and his prophet, Balaam. And then finally references them coming to the Jordan, coming to their home. And the implication is that God is saying, I have kept my promises. I did what I said I would do. I've been faithful to you and you have shown yourself to be faithless. And so to that, the people respond. They make their defense and they offer up a solution for this covenant breaking. And the the proposal that they bring is one of worship and offerings. And there's this escalation of them saying, in response to our covenant breaking, could we not bring burnt offerings to you? Could we bring year-old calves? Could we bring thousands of rams? Could we even bring 10,000 rivers of oil? Clearly this is hyperbole, but it's in earnest. They mean it. They desire to make amends for their failures. In verse 7 of Micah 6, they even say, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They would even go so far as to offer up their very offspring in order to make this right. And so Israel, people of Judah, when called to answer for this rampant injustice among them, their response is one of adjustment and of increasing their worship. We find out in the very next page, the very next verse, that this is to miss the point. And I will say, I can resonate with this response a bit myself. Church people can do that. And I have been a church person my entire life and I've been a a clergy member. I've worked on staff at a church for almost two decades now. And there's a tendency among worship people like me to view worship as a hammer and every problem as a nail. Worship becomes a fix-all. Do we need to grow people in their faith? Let's think about how we can expand that into worship. Do we need to pursue mission? Maybe we can can incorporate some of those things in worship. It can become the fix-all the crutch for us. Do we feel the dissonance of that? Do we feel the dissonance of Israel's appeal and response when God is simply saying, enact justice? And their response is to worship better. God tells them that this is not rocket science. This is not complex. This is not hard. I have told you, God says, my people, what I demand, what I require And then he gives what could be viewed as a summary of the law. A summary of the identity marker of God's people. Do justice. Mishpat, as Pete talked about last week. Love mercy. Mercy here is a unique word. It's not often translated in English as mercy. It's this word hesed. And I'm sure you've heard us talk about that before. It's a Hebrew word. It's, it's, It's used all throughout the Old Testament. It's a beautiful word. Because most of the time it's talked about in light of God's character. And oftentimes, I think in the ESV, it's almost always translated as steadfast love. And so if you read the Psalms and hear them talked about steadfast love, that that word is generally hesed. Uh, Some scholars call it covenantal faithfulness. When God says he's the one who shows steadfast love, what he's implying and saying is that he is the one who keeps covenant. He keeps his promises. My favorite translation comes from a, a man named Robert Alter and he, he translates hesed as loyal love. Loyal love. It is love that is beyond a feeling. It's love that makes a deep commitment to another. It's a love that keeps its promises. 
So God is saying to his people, love loyally. Be faithful to my covenant. Don't worry about thousands of, ten thousands of rivers of oil. Don't talk about offering your children. Just do the things that I've told you to do from the very beginning. Love my covenant. Be faithful to it. Do what I've asked to do. And the particular context here, this word is used to reference the least of these. It's a love that is toward the weak, the lowly, the destitute. And he's saying, show mercy to them, show kindness to them, show love to them. In this way, we display God's character, God's care for the poor, the orphan, the widow. It is in God's nature to show this loyal love. And so therefore his people are to reflect it. And so God is saying, if you do not do justice and love mercy, all the offerings in the world are not going to suffice. It is not true worship. Worship without mercy is not truly worship. And that's a theme that we see again and again in the prophets. Isaiah and Amos in particular say, I despise your festivals. I despise all of your sacrifices, all of these external practices that you are still engaged in while you're enacting this injustice that's rampant among you is not worth anything. Because it's not the point. You've missed the point. To have external religious cultic practices and not enact my covenant is to miss the point. All of the prophets criticize this. And they oftentimes speak of two kind of competing things, right? On one side, it's idolatry. It's putting other gods before you. And on the other, it's injustice. Those are the two major themes of the prophets. And I think author Andy Crouch has done a great job capturing the, the, the synthesis of these two things. And he says this, As idolatry and injustice always go together, Injustice requiring idolatry to justify exploitation and idolatry leading to injustice as the idols fail to deliver and demand even greater sacrifice. And he summarizes it with this. God hates injustice and idolatry because they are the same thing. One leads to the other. The other leads to the one. To engage in worshiping other gods demands injustice. It demands us to move away from this covenantal hesed framework and move into the realm of injustice. To pursue injustice is to move away from the God that is revealed in the scriptures as Yahweh and as we see in the New Testament in Jesus. This false worship or focusing on the externals of worship and missing the the internals of doing justice and loving mercy are extremely dangerous for the church. We should hear these as a warning to us. And the first thing I believe, the first reason that they are so dangerous is that they're self-deceiving, right? We can make it look like if our worship is good, if the externals are good, that everything is good, that the internals match. And so we may even try to escalate our worship as, as Israel did. We may try to add things to it and have a better liturgy, Better choirs, a bigger band, maybe even add an orchestra in there. More beautiful, glorious buildings, fog machines, lights, tithes, budgets, whatever your stream of the church is, whatever you view is worship at its peak. And if that is not true worship, if it does not entail mercy, loving mercy. So it deceives us. But it also, and I think this is a particularly important point in this moment, it damages those who come after us. 
because it's incoherent. And I think we can see this in particular with our young people and with our children, right? They know, they know us. And they know if we show up to church in our Sunday best and our lives are um, not consistent with that, if we are not growing in grace, if we are not being conformed to the image of Christ, our children know, Lord, have mercy. But a recent studies, several recent studies, have showed that young people are leaving the church in droves. And oftentimes the reason that they list is because the church has failed to meet the demands of justice. They failed to be true to their ideals. They failed to love mercy or hesed. Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley is a, an African-American priest in our uh, province, the Anglican Church in North America. He's also a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. And he said a few weeks ago something that has haunted me. He said that if we do not give our young people a biblical framework for justice, they will go find it somewhere else. Whatever movement, whatever protest, they will find a, a space where they can enact justice because they see all that's broken in the world. And if the Christian story, if the gospel cannot offer them a framework that seeks to end injustice, then they will have no business with us. So it damages those who come after us. And then finally, it destroys our witness. False worship, worship without mercy, destroys our witness. And it was true when Frederick Douglass said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hateth corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. And we see that today when the church fails to incorporate justice and mercy with our worship, we show ourselves to be frauds. There's a book that I read a few years ago by a historian named Erskine Clark. It's called Wrestling Jacob. You've probably heard me mention it at times, but the, the last few pages of the book are incredibly sad. They talk about churches in our city, not our church in particular, but churches in our neighborhood, let's say. And at the end of the Civil War, um, emancipation is announced. These slaves who built many of these houses of worship and who sat in the galleries, who heard uh, the songs, who heard the sermons, who prayed the prayers, who even came down to, to take communion. Talks about the sad march out of these churches to go found their own institutions because they realized the incoherence of worship uh, by slaveholders. The dissonance was too much for them to bear. And I must say that the reverse of this is also true. Just as worship absent of mercy is not true worship, so mercy without true worship of the living God is not merciful. At its best, mercy and justice absent true worship lose steam. They're unsustainable. Without a picture of the world and God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ, we will not be able to pursue. We will not have the energy, the resolve to pursue true justice and mercy. And at worst, mercy without worship of the living God creates its own new injustices. As, we, as Andy Crouch talked about, as we replace one version of God with another idol, we will inevitably bring about new versions of injustice. I'll quote Andy Crouch one more time. He says, when we try to establish justice apart from worship of the true God, at best, we will simply replace one set of God players with another. 
What will never be addressed by these thin secular conceptions of justice is the heart of the biblical understanding of justice, the restoration of the human capacity to bear the image in all its fullness. Hess said, loyal love, mercy and worship coming together. That is our call. And as we've seen by looking at our past, as we've seen looking as far back as ancient Judah, we recognize that we cannot do this. For some reason, we are unable, incapable of not falling down one side or the other, obsessing with the externals and neglecting the internals, or obsessing over the internals and neglecting the externals. Embracing worship, we miss out on mercy. Embracing mercy, we depart from true worship. The good news, though, this morning is that there is nothing we can offer, no sacrifice, no offering, no work of justice in the world that will ever make it right. That will ever bring about the, sin, the forgiveness of the sin of our souls. We cannot offer the fruit of our body in order to pay for souls, but thanks be to God, he did. He offered his own son, Jesus Christ. He who himself is, has said, loyal love kept his promises. And he did not abandon us to our sin. We see that in the cross, worship and divine mercy meet in this perfect offering that has forgiven the sins of us and the sins of the whole world. And more than that, it is this gospel that enables us to worship God rightly and pursue justice as we are called. So friends, people of the cathedral, people who happen to be stumbling onto this video this morning, I have just three quick encouragements for us as we think about mercy and worship. And the first is that we must tell the truth. We must tell the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. That's what we see in the first part of Micah, right? The laying out of God's case against Judah brings about at least a heart for a response. And then a reminder of God's faithfulness to us of his loyal love, that he has not abandoned us despite the mistakes and the terrible sins of, of our ancestors or our forebears or the terrible mistakes of us in this day and in this time. The gospel is enough and we must remind ourselves of that. Many of us have been greatly blessed and challenged by the study of this book, Color of Compromise. If you've not read it, I do commend it to you. Um, if, you ha- if you have questions about it, talk to me, talk to one of the people that has been a part of this. But it has been a gift to be reminded of our failings, but also be reminded of God's faithfulness to us, even in the midst of those. And I'll say this, that those of us who are eager for worship, which I am among them, we were just discussing this. I'm so ready to see your faces. I miss you so much. And I'm ready to worship together. we must ask ourselves, what are we to make of justice? How are we to pursue mercy, to love mercy? And how does this moment when we cannot gather together offer us an opportunity to pursue mercy, to love mercy in a new way? And for those of us who are eager for the pursuit of justice, I am too. I want to see us move forward in this area in in so many ways, in particular with this issue of race and racism in our city and in our country. I want to see God's change and transformation. But we must not lose sight of the gospel. We must not lose sight of the thing that animates our work through the power of the Holy Spirit. And more than that, I encourage you to not neglect worship, not to neglect worship online. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to watch these videos. I have a family. It's, It's rough. It's brutal. 
but watch and engage and participate. And then when we come back, come back and be a part of this and join us as we seek to be people who are the lovers of Hesed, who are deeply committed to worship of the triune God, but who are deeply committed to pursuing mercy. May God in his grace enable that work. Amen.